in the hope of glory specifically, right? That in some way, like, the reason that we're a part of things like this, um, the reason that we come to things like this, the reason that we have activities uh, like whether it's gospel community or practices like the examine or any of the things, the aspects of following Jesus that is the faith family that we talk about, the reason um, that um, the energy that kind of moves us into those activities is, is to hear either one of two things, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, we do these things because we want to hear God say, well done, that you're doing what you're supposed to do, that this is what you're supposed to do, right? Like, or we want to hear God say, this is my child in whom I'm well pleased, that we want a validation to some degree of our efforts um, or a validation to some degree of our identity. And again, those things aren't bad things, that, that again, this, this hope for glory this anticipation and expectation of glory is, um, at its fundamental, at its base level, innocent. Like, it's something that we're actually made for. You remember what glory was, C.S. Lewis told us. He said, glory is good rapport with God. That of all the things that we think of the glory, fame, illumination, splendor, beauty, majesty, um, um, exclaim, whatever, at its base, at its core, glory in our scriptures is good rapport with God. Acceptance by God. Response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of God. And isn't that what we're all after, right? I mean, that's what we all desire. Like, we desire this. And it's been made, we've been made to desire this. Because glory received, when it's received, is the satisfaction of having pleased him whom we are created to please. And so, therefore, in its, again, in its truest sense... Is innocent, leads to innocent rejoicing in the thing that God has made us to be. That we're actually made to rejoice in the thing that God has made us to be, the person God has made us to be. That that is how we were created. And we said that the way that we get to experience, um, the way that we get to see this glorious thing that is our lives, this wondrous thing that's been given to us, this life, our life and God's life, is to commit ourselves whole and holy to something, to something more than ourselves, to give ourselves away to something, to someone, for the sake and the good of that something or someone, right? That this is what we are actually, this is how we get to actually be a part of the glory. But remember what we said, that glory, because especially when we think of acceptance and acclaim and affirmation, it's not something that was earned or achieved or even awarded. But rather, glory is something experienced and matured into within the life and love of the glorifier, the one who glorifies us. That's really important for us, right, as we keep going in this practice of examine, to remember that glory is not earned or achieved or even awarded. The thing that we want in life, to be fully and truly who you're meant to be, is not earned or achieved or awarded, but rather experienced and matured into within the life and love of the glorifier. At least that's what we learn from what Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for us, wants for us, desires for us to know and to grow into the glory that he has, the glory that he has for us. Did you know that? Like that Jesus desire. I mean, think about it. In John 17, Jesus prays for us. Why do we pray for things? Because we want things, right? Like we pray because we desire something for the person that we're praying for, desire desire something for the 
or the thing that we're praying for. Desire, we want something. The same thing motivates Jesus to pray because he desires something for us. And so hear these words of Jesus in John 17 as his desire for you and I. Jesus says in John 17, Father, it's time. Display the glory of your Son, that the Son may display your glory. Display the splendor and brilliance, the thing that brings you fame and accolade through the Son who displays that very same thing. And then Jesus says, I, am glorif- I have glorified you on earth by completing down to the last detail, what you designed me to do. Jesus says the way that he glorified God, the way God glorifies him and he shares the glory of God is by doing and being the very thing that he was meant to be, reaching the teleos, the completion, the fullness of himself in in what God has given him, right? I spelled out your character in detail, Jesus says, to the men and women you gave me. They were yours in the first place. It's not like that they, these people who followed Jesus just out of nowhere like suddenly became gods. They were always gods. But something was woken up in them, awakened in them to recognize whose they were, always were. They were used in the first place. Then you gave them to me, and they have done now what you said. Now they're following in the things that you speak and you say. So Jesus says, I pray for them, for those you gave me, for they are yours by right. Everything mine is yours and yours is mine. And listen to these words. And I am glorified in them. My life is on display in them. I am glorified in them. I am made full and true in who I am in them. Holy Father, because of this, guard them as they pursue this life that you conferred as a gift through me. Guard them as you, they pursue this life that you conferred as a gift through me so that, you, so that they can be one heart and mind as we are one heart and mind. Bring them into this union. Guard them. Guard them so that the life that I give them, the life that's now my life lived in them, my glory in them, He says, I'm saying these things so that my people can experience my joy completed in them. I'm praying these things for them. I'm saying these things out loud for them so that they might experience my joy completed in them. I gave them your word. The godless world hated them because of it, because they didn't join the world's ways. But I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but rather that you guard them from the evil one that what they're after is going to be faced with opposition. That what they're after is going to feel like something that the world is against and that there's ones who are actually against them. So guard them, Father. Set them apart for holy service, Jesus prays. For holy service in the truth. What is the truth? Your word is truth. I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The same glory you gave me, listen to this, the same glory you gave me, I give them. The same glory that was given to Jesus, 
The same glory that he started the prayer off with. The glory of one who is, from the beginning of the, from the foundation of the world, is pleasing, accepted. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased before any of his actions, but who also is one who had said, well done, good and faithful servant, lived fully into who he's meant to be. That glory that is Jesus, Jesus shares with us. And he shares it with us so that we will be unified together as we are, as God the Father and God the Son are, Jesus in us and the Father in Jesus. Jesus prays, then they'll mature in this oneness. <laughs> then they'll mature in this oneness. When they share my glory, that's when the maturing will happen. They'll become perfectly one, reaching the end, the completeness of this design. It's designed to give the godless world evidence that you sent me and loved them in the same way that you loved me, having loved me long before there ever was a world. This is what Jesus prays that we'll know, that we'll live, that we'll experience, that, that we're delighted in, pleasing, loved, not pitied, but a real ingredient in the divine happiness long before there ever was a you. This is what Jesus longs for us to know. This is what Jesus longs for, for us to be driven by in the pursuit of what we do. It's what the psalmist, now hopefully we have come to know in our souls as we dive, dove into Psalm 139. What does Psalm 139 say? Do you remember? Psalm 139.13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully, reverently set apart. Set apart, the same thing Jesus prayed for us. Set apart. Wonderful are your works. And what are the works that the psalmist thinks are wonderful? It's him. It's God's intention for him. It's God's plan for him. It's God's knowing of him. God's being with him. God's covenant towards him. God's complete exhaustive knowledge of him. All that he is and will be. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance before it even was something that we could know or be known. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In the same way that Jesus is loved by God, we're loved by God and brought into the love of God. It's no wonder that after singing the praises of God's exhaustive, eternal, and empowering knowledge of him, the psalmist takes his commitment to God and passionately declares his opposition to anything opposing the truth and goodness and beauty of God's knowledge and will of him in the world. It's no wonder that the next verses are this passionate, um, almost like declarative, okay, I am absolutely 100% totally committed to who God says I am, to the truth, and against everything that is not truth and everything that would keep the truth from being seen in evidence. Here's what Psalm 139, 19 through 22 says. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not hate those who hate you, O Lord. Do not loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks, but let me just say it as a reminder. It's good and prudent even to recognize that the life you live in God, the life you're made to live, is fleshed out amid opposition to that very life. It's important that we know that. 
it's important that we know that what we're after won't be easy. That what we're after won't grow easily. That what we're after won't be experienced without opposition and setback. It's important for us to know that. It's wise to recognize that there is an enemy and to abhor the ill effects of hostility and adversariness. As Christine, again, pointed out in our psalm this week, if you remember, our Monday psalm. After all, Jesus' prayer for us mentions both the opposition of the world and the evil one. There is a measure where we must know what we are up against in becoming fully and truly who we are set apart to be and do. But a well-informed passion and perspective of what we are up against isn't the fuel, the sustained joy for living a renewed life. Knowing what we're up against, a passion and perspective of being against anything that's not the truth is not the fuel that sustains our joy. That it's not the fuel that extends the flame of new life birthed in us. Remember way, way back in the summer, like we observed a conversation between Jesus and his disciples just as they began and entered into the Sumerian journeys. Um, he sent out the, the 72. You guys kind of remember that scene where Jesus, just at the beginning of the Samaritan travels, sends out the 72. He tells them to take with them peace, to declare peace, and that the kingdom of God is near. Knowing that they'll receive opposition, that some will accept them in, and they'll get to declare the fullness of what that looks like, and some will reject them, and they'll dust their feet off and continue to, to walk on. Well, the disciples come back, and they come back from this, this experience of being sent out by Jesus, the same kind of sittingness that Jesus is praying, I think, for us for in, um, in his prayer in John 17. And they return with a similar passion as the psalmist, a passion that, 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 is, that, that uh, allows them to kind of see that, hey, they're up against something, that something can't really stand. In Luke chapter 9, it says this, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What they, get, what they experienced in their midst of being sent into the world to do the thing that God they were called to do in that moment, to be who they were called to be in that moment for the glory of God, to be a part of something that was bigger than themselves, the kingdom of God coming, the peace of God coming. They discover, like Psalm 118 that Lily read first earlier, that indeed God is on their side and that they do not fear. What can man or even demons do to them? The Lord is on our, their side. He's their helper. They shall look and triumph on those who hate them. That's what they discovered. That's what they come back. Look, even the demons flee from us in your name. They run from us. They can't stand against us. Listen, suitable, prudent, and encouraging knowledge for sure, right? To know that there's opposition and the opposition can't stand, that's pretty important. That's not a bad thing, right? That's a good thing. But Jesus doesn't let the disciples' joy settle there. He doesn't let them revel in the fact that the opposition, that they have power over the opposition, that the opposition doesn't have power over them. He calls the fuel of their set-apart service into something more powerful, more powerful than being simply for truth and against untruth. Luke 10, verse 18 says, And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's just affirming what they said, what they got to experience. He's like, I saw the enemy when the enemy first fell. 
Like, I've been there from the beginning. I've been a part of this battle from the very beginning. You're right to see with the things that you see. You're, it's good that your eyes have been, that been cleared away, and you can see that you're actually in this, this battle. And listen, and then he affirms. He says, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Again, he's just affirming what they got to experience, that it's a good thing. It's a true thing to know this, to know that the Lord is your helper and on your side, and he will, give, he will give you victory over all that hates you and all that opposes you and all that opposes him, his peace, his kingdom coming. Nevertheless, Jesus says, do not rejoice. Do not take joy in this. Do not let this be the source of your joy, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice, rather make the source of your joy that your names are written the Lord has known your days from the very beginning and written them all out. That your life is written into the life of God. That's where your joy is. And that God's life is written and worked out in yours. The fuel that flames our rebirth, our becoming who we are truly made to be in Jesus, is not the power of opposition the energy that comes from opposing a force, but that, there's some energy in that, right? I mean, how any of it, I know not everybody in here is a sports person, but how many in here, whether you're a sports person or not, is a competitive person? Doesn't competition, having an opposition, fuel you a little bit, if you're honest? But that's not a sustaining energy, a sustaining force, nor is a sustaining force simply to have opposition or to even have power over opposition. But rather, the fuel that, that flames our rebirth is love. For the passion against can only destroy. A passion for competition, a passion to be against, to overcome even, as good as it can be, if that is the only source of our energy, it only destroys, ends up destroying the very things that, we, that we're after. But love, on the other hand, love is a power to make something new, something whole, something complete. And it's that power, the power of love, that is the energy of our being born again, isn't it? It's the power that we're able to see and experience the true life of God's kingdom. I mean, I know this is a verse that we all know, but it says in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, not be destroyed, not be overcome, but have eternal life, life full and forever, the, the complete life that we're after. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, again, to destroy, to just simply be against, but in order, rather, that the world might be saved through him. In greater love, Jesus would say later to his disciples, has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. He came into the world not just to save the world in general, but to lay down his life for those whom he knows, his friends, and who know him. The same knowledge that we've been learning about and talking about all through Psalm 139, the intimate knowledge of a companion, the covenantal knowledge of one who's been with us and knows us inside and out, the exhaustive knowledge of one who's crafted and formed us, and listen, to reach our end, our maturation, the fullness or completeness of our design trajectory for who we are made to be, our teleos, we are to love like our Father loves. 
That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. We read it a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to read it again for us. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. After he's talked to, you remember what's happening in Matthew 5? Matthew 5 starts with Jesus' declaration of who are the blessed, the Beatitudes, right? Like here's what a full and complete life looks like, which seems to be a little bit opposite of what the world thinks a good and full life looks like, or at least contradictory to the normal things. Again, like, like Jesus is saying later in his prayer, that like you've chosen to lead a way, live a way that looks different than the world, and the world doesn't accept that, right? Because it looks different. It feels different. It's, it doesn't, it's not in beat with it. But then he says, like, the fullness of that is you're called into it. You become salt and light. You become ones who, who are a city on a hill. You demonstrate you're set apart for holy service in the truth to declare and proclaim what is true, that God loves you and has loved you and has been with them. And listen, again, most of us are all in for that, right? And most of the people who are listening to Jesus at some level are all in for that. They want to be a part of what God is doing. And they want to be distinct in the world in which they're doing it, like living. Like that's the first century Jew that Jesus was preaching to. And yet the Jewish people, the religious people, the faithful people had missed a lot of the heart, the motivation, the power of this rebirth. They, they knew what they were against. They were glad to have power over the opposition, but they lacked this love. And so for, for the second half of Matthew 5, Jesus keeps going through, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, don't, don't, don't murder. I say, don't be angry. Don't hold something against your brother unrightly. You say, you know, don't, don't swear an oath. I say, don't, don't, even, don't even, like, swear at all. Like, you say, like, it's, a, it's, it's, it's okay to get divorced. I say, like, no, like, you need to be one to have a committed life. Like, you say all these things, but I say all these things, right? I'm showing you the heart of what I am, that I am for unity of people, togetherness of people, being, people being whole and full in the truth of who they are in God. You seem to be only for whatever kind of truth that is yours, what you think, I think. And he just comes to this conclusion. He draws this conclusion. He, there's like seven of these, but, um, but you, you've heard it said, and I say, and they keep kind of moving all in this direction to this final, like, pivotal point where Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, God didn't say that. Nowhere in the scriptures did, did God declare this. But it kind of sounds a little bit like Psalm 139, right? Where David's conclusion got to. So it's not surprising that people, religious people would have gotten there, right? Like, hey, like I, I am for what God is for. Like I am completely against anything that's against truth. And do I hate your enemies? Like your enemies are my enemies. So therefore, like I will love those who are with me, but I'll hate those who are against me. But Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father, so that you may actually be who you were meant to be, your true selves, the ones in, inheritors of God's life in your life. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you have, do you have? Don't even the tax collectors, remember the insiders who are really outsiders, the ones who... Um, who, who, who every Jew right, right here in this scenario would have despised? Like the ones who, like they know that they're better than, don't they do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than, than others? Do not even the Gentiles, those who don't even know a thing about God. Don't they do the same? You're indistinguishable. 
indistinguishable. If all your motivation, if your primary motivation is to simply be for truth and against things that aren't true and not a love like the Father loves. Because what does he say after that? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect is a weighty command and impossible expectation, right? But only if we forget two things. First, that the word perfect is teleos. It's a Greek word that, again, means arriving at our end, becoming fully mature in the fullness and completeness of our design trajectory for who we're made to be. And that reaching our teleos is dependent on the covenantal companionship and exhaustive knowledge of the one who hymns us in, holds us, forms us, leads us, as we learn in Psalm 139. Right? And so, like, when, when we read a different version of, of these words, maybe it helps us make a little more sense. It says in the message, you're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and the unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. The energies of prayer. The energies of being for them. The same prayer, the same desire that Jesus prays with, the same energy that Jesus prays with for us. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. Then you're actually being what you're meant to be and who you're meant to be. That is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good, the bad, the nice, and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Grow up. You're kingdom subjects. Now live like it. As Jesus prayed for us, mature. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. Listen, discovering the glory of God's knowledge of us, of who he knows us to be, of who he knows us to be able to become, causes us to energetically commit ourselves to desire what he desires. Right? That's what we've learned in the examine. Like, this is the, this, like knowing what God knows of us, we are created to know what God knows of us. And that causes us, commits us to be, to be committed to doing in what God wants for us, to wanting what God wants for us and for his world. And we give ourselves wholly to this pursuit, to being faithful to what he wants for us and others. But the passion of this discovery can't sustain our efforts for something better. For being and for doing what we are reverently set apart to be and do. Eventually, eventually our passion leads to conflict, to fighting against the things against us, against God, against what is true. It doesn't distinguish us. It makes us like everyone else. And while it is reasonable, even necessary, to know that there is an enemy in opposition to the good, our commitment to doing what God wants, if that is our primary motivation, eventually leads us to fight and live in the way of those who are fighting against, rather than a whole new way. Listen, if all we want is to know what God knows of us and to do what God wants us to do, that's the, the end of our motivation, then we're going to end up living just like everyone else. 
That's what Jesus says. But remember what we talked about a few weeks ago, what Merton said. He said, the one reality on which our true character, our true identity and happiness depend is our fundamental orientation to God, right? Who we are in God, with God. Not just for God, but through God and in God. Our fundamental orientation to him. And what he's discovered in Psalm 139 is that we're fundamentally in his life. He's in our life. He knows every detail of us. He searches us. He knows us. He observes us. He creates us and crafts us. And from that, we are, know that we are created to will what God wills, to know what God knows, and also to love what he loves. Again, we can be wholeheartedly committed to wanting what God wants, to knowing what he knows. But if we attempt to live our lives with only those two motives, we miss something that we're made for. We miss something that we're made for, for loving what God loves. So no matter how good of a life we live, we'll miss out on the full, whole, complete, glorious life we are made for. That's what David Brooks was discovering when he wrote The Second Mountain. Again, I'm trying to help connect some of the dots for us if you haven't caught that by the chance. But remember what he said? He said, I no longer believe that the character formation is mostly an individual task or is achieved on a person-by-person basis. I no longer believe that character building is like going to the gym. You do your exercises and you build up your honesty, courage, integrity, and grit. You become glorious by working at being glorious, right? I now think character is the byproduct of giving yourself away. You love things that are worthy of love. You surrender to a community or a cause. Make promises to other people. Build a thick jungle of loving attachments. Lose yourself in the daily act of serving others as they lose themselves in the daily act of serving you. Character is a good thing to have. There's a lot to be learned on the road to character, Brooks says. But there's a better thing to have. Joy. And the serenity, the joy arrives as you come closer to embodying perfect love. Listen, the fuel for sustained motivation to live the life we were meant to live, to become who we are truly set apart to be, the life we long for, is the joy of perfect love. So what does it mean to love what God loves? What does it mean to love what God loves? Quite simply, to love the way God loves, to love what God loves, is to love is to, love, is to will what is really good. To will what is really good, truly good. And such love must be based on truth. What did Jesus pray for us? Set them apart for holy service in the truth. Your word is the truth. If I love someone, something, some place, some person, some profession, some passion, it has to be loved whole and true. What is true? To love what God loves is to prayerfully seek and find God's covenantal, complete, crafted knowledge of what is love. To love as God loves, to love what to be mature and complete in our love as the Father is com- com- mature and complete in his love, is to prayerfully, prayerfully, with the energies of prayer, seek and find God's covenantal, complete, and crafted knowledge of what is love. God actually in the very thing that we love. Not just God for the thing that we love, but God in the very thing, the person that we love. And then to submit our love to the examination, to be examined, and to being guided into the truth. 
Because the reality is, we still have a lot of maturing to do in our loving. That if we're honest, there's ways in which we love that are grievous, hurtful, and harmful, that aren't fully in the truth. There's ways that we love others, whether that be specific people, people groups, places, professions, passions, the things that we're made to be a part of in a way that's a selfish love, a self-centered love, a way that, that is an incomplete love because it doesn't love truth, the truth, the only, and truth only known in God's knowledge and doesn't seek that. Or maybe it only seeks that and doesn't find it. So to love another person, a people, a profession, a passion, is to seek God's knowledge of them, to desire for them to know God's knowledge and for our love to act upon it and step with his knowledge. And so therefore, it's humbly enough to be examined. But perfect, mature love begins by loving the truth, not just the truth for that person, but the truth embodied and reborn in that person, that place, that thing. And this truth is, is no mere cold perception of obligation flowing from moral precepts. The truth must be the concrete desire and design that God has for them, of them. And listen, it's a knowledge that is, as the psalmist said, often too much for us. Too high for us. How wonderful are your thoughts, the psalmist says in 139.17. How vast they are. I cannot attain them. There are things about, about what God calls us to love and to love the fullness of that, that calls us into a type of love that will allow us to walk in the mystery that only God can really comprehend. A willingness to love things for what God wants for them, but a willingness to also submit to that our knowledge of what God has for them might just be a little limited. In order to love others with perfect love, we have to love truth. We want the good for them, the only good for them, which is what God, their life in God, their life with God, God's life in them. And the only way that we go can really find ourselves in step with that is if we let God lead us into a love for others. Like it can't just be something that we just birth in ourselves. But just like the glory that we receive is something that's given to us. And so what I'd love for us to do just for a few moments, because, hey, listen, so like the where, where we're going from here with the examine is we've looked at the examine and hopefully gotten to, um, to know what God knows of us, to learn a little bit of how to discern even what God wants for us. Um, but like we, we want to move into those commitments, what it looks like to live in those commitments that God calls us to with fullness. And so in, in November, that's what we're going to spend our time doing here, is trying to work those things out. But like we can't move into those things unless our love, unless we love what God loves. We can't just be, we can't just know what God knows and will what God wills. We have to love what God loves. And so there's, there's a lady named Julian from, um, uh, from Norwich. She's, she's no longer alive. She was, she was around a long time ago. Um, but she found herself in a, in a, in a kind of a place where, um, 
She was asked a lot of times to uh, engage in the life of people because she loved them and because they know that they were loved by her. And she wanted, in that engagement, to be one who walked faithfully in the love that she had for them, but more so the love that the Father had for them. And so she developed an eye motion to help with kind of her, her affections. Her. And so she, she did this. She says, I look up to God. So she would physically look up. I mean, it's, this is, look, she's, 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 she's a nun. She's a little strange, right? Um, no offense. Like, but people, I mean, you know, mystics and, and, and um, people of, uh, that are, yeah, they're just strange. It's okay. It's, it's, it's all right to admit it. Um, but that's probably why they're special. And so she looked up. And then she said, I look up to God. I look to you. And I still look at God. Not I look through you to God, to God on the other side of you. I look up to God. I look to you. And I keep looking at God. The whole idea of this kind of motion, of like trying to see God in the person, in the thing that we love, is what she was after. She knew, as one who was considered wise, who was a wise person, that the way that she could love people could be something that's off. Even in her, because even though she knew what God knew, and she wanted what God wanted, she wanted more than that to love what God loved. She wanted to love God in the person, not just for the person. She wanted to love God in the thing that she was called to, not just for the thing she was called to. Does that make any sense? Maybe not, but a little bit. Okay, maybe we'll get there. It's all right. It takes some time. And so what I want us to do for just a few moments is just kind of take a minute to kind of do this practice, kind of with the examine, use Julian's, I motions to help us as we think about the, the person, the place, the people, the passion, the profession that we love. So do this for me. Just take a deep breath. Close your eyes. I'm going to ask a question. And the first thing that comes to mind, just hold on to it. Other than yourself, What or who has God called you to love? You personally, you specifically. Don't don't try to think about it too much. Just what popped in your mind? Was it a person in your life right now? A spouse, a friend, a neighbor, coworker? Was it a profession, a passion, a place, a people? Now hold that in your mind. Just a second, there's going to be a prompt on the screen. After I get done praying, I want you to look at the prompt and just follow it. And then you just have a minute to just sit in it. Okay? Father, I thank you that you have made us to love. That you not only loved us, but have 
formed and shaped us to be ones who love others? That you have formed and made us to be a part of your love moving in the world, a transforming love, a powering love, that a love that, yes, overcomes opposition. But also a love that births something new and whole and complete. So help us, Father, to love what you love, to love in the way that you love. Lead us, mature in us, complete in us, the love that is our life. In your son's name we pray. All right, take a look at the prompt. Now let's just sit in it for a minute. If you notice something in the prayer, that we begin not just praying and asking the Lord to show us himself in those that we love, but in ourselves, in our own histories, our own past, in his own presence with us. We cannot love others out of the love that we live in, exist in, in God. And that's where it begins. That's not where it ends. Again, Julian's eye movements go from looking up to looking at, looking at the other. Now pray this. Imagine, the, again, the person, the place, the people, the profession, the passion, whatever it was that was, what came to mind in the first question, and then ask the Holy Spirit to let you see. To let you see who that person, that place, that people, that passion really is. I want you to just pray this prayer. 
And then again, I'll give you another minute or so just to kind of sit in it and let the Spirit just press upon you however He wants. And then we'll move to the last eye movement. Again, the eye movements go from looking up at God, looking at the other, getting to see God within them, at work within them, where the Spirit's leading, wanting, again, what God wants for them, right? But again, Julian's, I think, wisdom comes in that she doesn't just stop there. She says, now you just keep looking at God, praying, Jesus, lead me in how I can join your way, your love for their true good. Not simply knowing what God wants for them, wanting what God wants for them, but then seeing, looking at God in a way that allows you to love what is actually true and good in them. Willing to, willing to let your even own heart, your own affections be submitted to the Spirit's leading in how you love that person love that thing, love that place, and the actions that birth from it. And so hopefully at this point, maybe you've got a little idea of, of what this looks like. So I just want us to leave us in this for about three, three or four minutes.
So I think in this, this part is when we really get to use kind of the examine, the Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Praying, Jesus, lead me in how I can join your way, your love for their good. Search me, know me. And that whatever the Spirit leads you to, and sometimes the Spirit might lead you to not do anything, to not say anything. It might lead you to, to say something that feels hard or something that feels out of the blue. But again, if the desire is not simply to do what God wants, but to love as God loves and to love what God loves, and you've taken the time to look at God and to look at them, and that you're willing to submit yourself into letting your, what the, the love that comes from you be what the Father actually loves for them. To love the truth, what is truly good. Then you get to act in, not just in courage, but you get to act in faith. You get to act in truth and in what's pure. And just think about what our relationships would look like if this is how we actually engaged each other. Before we spoke to coworkers, spouses, before we entered into our daily lives, before we, heck, before we entered into some of our choices and big choices in life, right? But the beauty is, wherever we add and whatever, how many times we haven't done this, and I've not done this millions of times, <laughs> feels like, is we can start doing it. So Jesus says that we're, we have to mature into, we have to become we have an end still in front of us. There's still, there's still something more for us to grow into, and that's what his prayer and desire is for us. So let me pray for us, and I'm going to let you just sit in this, and then I'll call us into communion. Father, again, we thank you that you have made us to be a part of something more than us. And it wasn't just a distant making and creating, but something but a, a delight for you to craft and to form us, to call us into the, to be the people we are meant to be in the time and place that we are. We are. And so, Father, Lord, we confess that we want to, to be who we are meant to be in you. We also confess, Father, Lord, even more so that we want the love that we have experienced to be the love that is moved into the world through us. We want... Jesus to be glorified in us, through us. His love, the love that he shares with the Father and the love that he brings us into with the Father. The love that comes from us and makes the people and the places, the professions, the passions good and true and beautiful in your eyes. Help us, Father. In your son's name.